0: This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.
1: That's, in a way, the great revelation, is that Calvin believed that the Institutes should speak to the lives of people and not be something abstracted from their lives.
0: Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master, and we are honored to have as our guest today the Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Yale Divinity School, Dr. Bruce Gordon. Professor Gordon is the author of a number of works, including a masterful biography of John Calvin entitled Calvin, and he's also written a book on Calvin's Institutes called John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, a biography. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Bruce Gordon on John Calvin. The first part focused on his life, the second on his influence, and especially his influence through writing. So, Professor Gordon, thank you for agreeing to talk to us a second time.
1: <laughs> Great to be back.
0: So, just how much did Calvin write in his lifetime?
1: Oh, an enormous amount. He's one of these people. I mean, Luther is also a similar case. You just don't quite grasp how much they could produce. In a day, in a week, in a year, Calvin was continuously either writing himself or, as he did later age, as he became unwell, he would dictate, often from his bed. He could do it in fluent Latin. He could do it in French. And his scribes and secretaries would write down what he said. And he spoke so well and so clearly that they could basically take down his arguments as he presented them. So he was constantly writing. We have, you know, we know his institutes well it's his most famous work but he wrote commentaries on almost all of the books of the bible his sermons he delivered as i say extempore, but they were written down he was a prolific letter writer he wrote other tracts, which may be familiar to some people or less familiar to others but he was constantly writing he didn't sleep a great deal
0: <laughs> now his writing of course is still extremely influential today but how was his work generally received in his own day
1: Yes. Well, he emerges in you know, 1536 as the author of this little work on the institutes of the Christian religion as an unknown. But the work is well received by the great and the good of the Reformation, Heinrich Bullinger in Zürich, uh, Martin Butzer in Strasbourg and others. They realize that there's a real talent here. But it wasn't till after he returns to geneva in in 1541 that his writings really start to become well known they are disseminated in france of course they're condemned by the catholic authorities but calvin is remarkable for the the reach that his works achieved and one major reason for this was that he turned geneva into a center of printing major Printing works were established in Geneva during his time. He had a close relationship with printers. So his and, and Geneva was well placed, of course, for material to travel across Europe, particularly into France, but also into into the Empire, so that his writings from the fifteen forties onwards become well known across Europe, and by you know, the 1550s, Calvin is really one of the best sellers of the Reformation. Even into England, he's being translated into English, Dutch, German, even into Eastern European languages. He is a printing sensation by the 1550s and into the 1560s. His works are everywhere, much to the consternation of his opponents.
0: What about the Institutes? Why is it that he wrote the Institutes to begin with? Obviously, uh, expanded on it in many different editions, but why did he initially write it?
1: It emerges out of his desire to provide, as he says in his his, preface and and dedication, to provide a summary of the faith. Now, in the original form, when he writes his dedication to uh, the King of France, Francis I, it's to defend those who are in his native land against charges that they're seditious, that they represent a threat to the king, and to demonstrate that their teaching is fully in accord with the gospel. The dedication, the preface to Francis I, remains attached to the Institutes all the way through Calvin's life because it sets out his primary purpose, which was to explain the doctrine of the faith from Scripture. And the numerous editions that it goes through is really Calvin's attempts to become clearer in expressing the doctrine of the faith out of scripture, to do it ever more clearly, ever more accessibly to other people. But what, you know, so he writes it to, to, in a sense, to defend the faithful, but it becomes quickly a book which is intended to teach those who will be pastors the elements of the faith. And then, of course, in its in its vernacular forms in French and other languages, it's a book for lay people who can read.
0: So how much change and growth did the Institutes undergo over the course of Calvin's life? How much did he add to it? And are there particular places where we see really significant additions? Or are there places that remain unchanged? How, how much how much
1: changes? Well, it grows exponentially during during his life. Calvin rarely <laughs> changed his mind about anything. The Institute grows and grows because it reflects his studies, his work as a preacher, his pastoral work, his biblical commentaries, all of those efforts, his letters the various situations and conflicts in which he found himself, all of these are mapped in the subsequent editions of the Institutes in which the text becomes larger and larger. So, you know, let's think of a, a couple of examples. We know, for instance, that through the 1540s, Calvin was reading more deeply in, in the Classics, the literature of antiquity, Greek and, and Roman. We also know that he was studying the medieval tradition of theology, read Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux was an important voice for Calvin. He, he was a, an autodidact. He constantly was reading. He was constantly educating himself. He doesn't have a degree in theology. He had studied law at university. He'd studied the arts. So he taught himself theology and together with, through his learning through colleagues. And he was reading and reading and reading. He was his engagement with scripture, of course, was daily, both in his own devotions, but through preaching, as I say, biblical commentaries. And as he did this, he was constantly expanding his ideas. And he was rearranging the topics of the Institutes through the subsequent editions as he began to think more clearly about how these topics should be organized to set out the doctrine of the faith most clearly. And he says in the 1559, which is the Latin that we're most familiar with, because it's the one, the English translations that most people read, he says, I think I've got it as right as I'm going to get it by this point, I think I've found the right order. But it it was a lifetime journey coming to that point, and it's a lifetime of learning and of service to the church. It's the lifetime of controversies, such as the anti-Trinitarians who emerge in Geneva, the Servetus case. All of these cause Calvin to rethink and rewrite sections of the institute usually to expand them not necessarily to change his ideas as i say but to expand them express them more fully in the latter part of the institutes for example he moves his teaching on predestination to book three and separates it from his teaching on providence that's much debated as to why he did this but he does it he's shifting things around continuously as the institutes grows but it's I, you know my argument is that it, it's a map of the spiritual and intellectual development of the man
0: is there a sense in which in addition to his own development it also reflects in his mind a slightly different audience do you think he's still writing with the same person the same reader in mind as he goes on and it's just a question of his own growth or is that shifting as well
1: Oh, I think it, you're absolutely right. I mean, the Latin version, of course, is for an international audience. Latin is, is the language of learning across Europe. It remains the language of the church. Calvin, of course, spoke French, but he didn't know German. So the you know, his contact with reformers in, in Germany or other parts of Switzerland was through latin so latin was the language of learning but it was also the language for educating the those who would become pastors so it was for the academy it was for schools calvin lectured in latin in geneva so he was constantly engaging with audiences all the time and he says himself in in his preface in in 1559 the way in which his audiences have shaped or helped to shape the way in which he's put the institutes together. So he's very mindful of his readership. But when he writes the versions in French for a different audience, he doesn't change his arguments, but he presents the text very differently. He takes out a lot of the scholarly and classical references. The text is is more accessible to a lay audience. It's He takes out some of the more technical parts of it. So he's, I mean, I think it's one of Calvin's great talents was that he knew how to speak to different audiences. And the versions of the Institutes reflect very much an engagement with his readership.
0: The Institute has had such a significant influence on so many people in in so many denominations since Calvin's own day. Why do you think that is? I know it's probably impossible for us to pull apart all the reasons, but what are the features of that work that make it seemingly a sort of perennial inspiration and teaching tool for people?
1: Sure. I think it's, as you say, it has a variety of, of reasons, but to be brief about this one of the things that is uh, most striking about the Institutes is that it is extremely clear. It's very carefully laid out. Um Even for, you know, I find for students today in reading it in, in class, they are struck by, you know, whether one accepts them or not, but they're struck by the clarity and force of Calvin's writings. And also the way in which the book is something that you can, as, as he intended it, you could look up particular topics that you were looking, you know, needing to, to read something about. And so you can, the book is, is very, to put it crudely, you know, user friendly. Um, but it's the clarity with which he expresses his, himself and his theology, which I think has been a major part of why that work Has had such a life after Calvin. If you think of many of the other great classics of the Reformation, you know they likewise, you know, Luther's works, particularly his ones from fifteen twenty, Freedom of Christian. These have also been highly influential. But Calvin is the one who really produced an all-encompassing theology, which you know lays out with such a structure that that people could understand, you know, almost immediately what it was he was saying to them. And so it, it is as he intended it to be. It's a compendium of, of doctrine that people could use. Also, I think it's it's life, and I tried to say this in in the book I did on the institutes. It's very much associated with Calvin's own authority. You know, he let his name becomes Calvinism. He's seen as the father figure of this movement. His authority in Geneva, his reputation. Of course, to his opponents, it's, it's, a, it's a dark one, Servetus. But for the many who adhere to the Reformed tradition, you know, the name of Calvin continues to carry authority from the Reformation, his own life. And this book becomes a representative of that authority, which, you know, he has continued amongst certain groups to, to have. So there's a relationship between the individual and the book, which has has come down to to our time. And there is the book itself became a classic because it was so accessible.
0: Yeah, I just wondered if you could briefly expand on that. The Reformed and and, and in our own country Presbyterian tradition is associated so closely with Calvin, but also with with Scotland and John Knox. And I, I wonder if you could just describe briefly how Calvin sort of funnels in and his teaching funnels in to the Presbyterianism that develops in Scotland and then eventually sort of finds its way over here
1: sure well yeah it's a huge story but you know I can maybe try and say something about it John Knox of course was was in Geneva he famously described it as the perfect school of Christ he he returns to Scotland he is an instrumental figure in the development of Presbyterianism of the Scottish Reformation and he brings. You know, the teaching of Geneva, not just Calvin, you know, uh, Calvin's successor and friend, Theodore Beza. You know, these people are also influential. Their works are also being read. And one of the things I tried to show in the institutes is that You Calvin never intended his book to be read alone. He always believed that it should be read alongside or in conversation with a broad range of other authors whom he saw himself connected to through their commitment to the word of God. So... You know, Calvin's unique authority in Geneva meant that his institutes carried a lot of influence in, in Scotland, in the, in the Low Countries, in the East, in, in Hungary. But we tend to forget that other people were being read at the same time. In Scotland, for instance, in the 17th century, you get people like Samuel Rutherford who become major voices. You have the Puritans in, in England. Of course, who then bring various forms of of the reform faith across the atlantic so calvin is major part of that story but one of the things i want to tell is that he he remains only a part of it he always needs to be read in the context of Other people who were also influences. We see, for instance, the, you know, the, the troubled relationship between the Wesleys and Calvin. And there were times, particularly in the 18th century, although people like Edwards thought highly of Calvin, where the institutes was, you know, not as widely read as had been earlier. And then it has a revival in the 19th century. So it's had a kind of up and down history, as one might expect. But the name Calvin remains influential in the spread and diversification of presbyterianism and you know to this day he he remains associated closely with the, the reformed tradition not only in north america but you know increasingly with the growth of the reformed tradition in places like brazil in africa and in asia calvin is being read anew and often in in quite different circumstances
0: Last question. Calvin is so influential today still, as you say. Should Christians who are listening to this, some of whom are pastors, many of whom are not, should they still read Calvin? And if so, where should they begin? Is the Institutes the place to start?
1: I yeah, well the Institutes is is, is certainly a place to start. I think we shouldn't forget some of calvin's other writings i think one of the texts i like to to get people to read is the beginning his what he calls his argument to his commentary on genesis it's you know relatively long and pretty full but it gives perhaps a a view of calvin that people are not so aware of and that is you know he he speaks of the glory of creation and god's work and and of the world and it gives a wonderful i think overview of calvin's perception of of creation of humanity of god's redemption and so that's just another text that i you know I suggest people could go and have a look at but i would certainly say you know that the institute's you know is a compelling read i do a course which i'll be doing this this coming year where we read through with students the whole of it and regardless of their, you know, theological positions, they're almost always extraordinarily struck by how pastoral the Institutes is, that clearly Calvin is writing with an eye to the life of the church. It's not abstract theology. So I think, you know, the Institutes is, is a very inviting read. One of its most beautiful parts, I think, is what he has to say about the Christian life in, in book three, which I think you know anybody could read and admire for its beauty and vision, so I think the institutes I would certainly recommend, but I wouldn't say that uh, you know they should only be read. I think one should look at the biblical commentaries, and we now have translations of his sermons. I would recommend that people could read those and and find them very rewarding.
0: Dr. Gordon, I wish we had more time, but thank you for the time that you've given to us today, and thank you for all your ongoing work in writing, which I've benefited from greatly, and I think many of our listeners will have as well.
1: Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you, and, and thanks very much.
0: Thank you for listening to part two of our interview with Dr. Bruce Gordon. If you missed part one, you should be able to still access it on placefortruth.org or in the iTunes feed for Theology on the Go. Just for listening today, we'd like to offer you the possibility of winning a free gift, a copy of Dr. Gordon's book, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, a biography. He mentioned the Institutes a great deal on today's program and this book is a way of exploring some of the things he said even further we also appreciate you continuing to listen and continuing to support Theology on the Go and the other ministry opportunities of the Alliance Uh, if you'd like to donate to the Alliance you can do so at AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org and thanks again for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth